at Ephesians chapter 6. And it's an amazing, an amazing passage. But last week what we did is we, we began talking about this, this whole thing about a battle on two fronts. And I said last week that, that the first front that we have to battle with is just ourselves. It's our flesh. And we looked at 1 Peter chapter 2, and, and we're not going to look at that again. But, but in that passage, it really gives us three things as Christians, three reasons to engage the battle. The first reason was that uh, our Christian citizenship demands the fight. You know, as Christians, we've been enlisted into God's army. Our, our home is uh, not here. Sometimes we get really comfortable thinking that this is where we live, but our home is actually in heaven, and that's what Peter says, that our citizenship, citizenship is in heaven. And because of that, we want to fight for the Lord because we have been enlisted into His army. Secondly, uh, the passions of the flesh provoke the fight. You know, we looked at that, and basically what I said about that was that you know, we don't have to wake up every morning and think, okay, I'm going to go engage this battle. No, the battle's already engaged against us from the moment we wake up in the morning to the moment we go to sleep, and even sometimes in our sleep, isn't it? But our flesh is constantly waging war, and we're going to look again at our, at our other enemy and how he is constantly waging war today as well. And then we also looked at uh, this idea that fruitful evangelism motivates the fight. Because Peter says that there's a watching world that is looking at us as Christians and how we live matters. And when they see us living godly lives, uh, what they see is a, a picture of Jesus and they say, I want what they have. But if we don't live that life, if we don't live that life, we bring shame to Christ and therefore they don't want Him. So it's important for us to engage the battle because evangelism, fruitful evangelism, motivates that fight. And today we're going to look at the other side of the battle, and it's the battle of uh, the other realm. The spiritual—it's a, a battle of spiritual warfare, and it's an amazing uh, that there's so many strange ideas about this. What means what this means to be involved in spiritual warfare? I mean, you can have a lot of things out there about binding and loosing, and I'm not going to get into all that. Just to say that many people take that out of context. But you know, when when you mix. A fallen culture with, with television, false teaching, and some Sunday school together with some uh, other things, some biblical truth, you come up with some pretty confused conclusions. I mean, I want to I give you some examples of some Sunday school kids who gave some answers to Bible questions, and obviously it wasn't all from the Bible, their answers. For instance, one young student said this, ancient Egypt was inhabited by mummies, and they all wrote in hydraulics. They lived in the Sarah Desert and traveled by Camelot. Certain parts of the Sarah Desert are cultivated by irritation. I think this young man had a little sister maybe named Sarah. Another child said, The Bible is full of interesting characters. In the first book of Guinness, Adam and Eve were created from an apple tree. One of their children, Cain, asked, Am I my brother's son? Another kid said this, God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son on Mount Montezuma. <laughs> Jacob, the son of Isaac, stole his brother's birthmark. <laughs> Moses led the Hebrew slaves to the Red Sea, where they made unleavened bread, which is bread made without any ingredients. <laughs> Moses went up on Mount Sinai, to get the Ten Commandments. He died before he reached Canada. 
There's one more. David was a Hebrew king skilled at playing the liar, L-I-A-R. He fought with the Finkelsteins. And his son, Solomon, had 300 wives and 700 porcupines. <laughs> and I know that those are, are funny, but you know, there's a little bit of truth in that. Because if we take our theology from all these different areas, we're going to get some strange ideas about spiritual warfare as well. And, you know, but we have to have a good perspective on this whole idea that there, are, that there is a being called Satan. And he does have followers that are fallen angels called demons. And they are waging a war against us. We don't always see it that way. But C.S. Lewis wrote this. There are two equal and opposite errors in which our race can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. And, you know, I wonder which is the most tempting error for you, to disbelieve that, that, that they actually exist or whether you think they're behind every, anything and everything. And when I became a Christian, I remember seeing the movie The Exorcist. Or, I mean, I remember seeing the movie The Exorcist. And as a young boy, I saw that. And I, I, did, I thought kind of maybe that's right. But when I became a young Christian, I began to read books. And, and like, uh, how many remember This Present Darkness or Piercing the Darkness? And you get this perspective, and it's not necessarily really good theology. But, you know, I kind of had a, this idea that, that Satan was behind everything and that there was spiritual warfare going on in everything, and that's not necessarily true. You know, and for me today, I probably fall on the other side that I, I rarely think that the battle is between us and demons. I think it's more of a, a fleshly battle with myself. But no, we have to have a good perspective on this. And, and we have to understand that, you know, even if you see a movie like The Exorcist, which can be really scary, and I did this, you know, as a, as a young teenager, I saw that movie and I'm not recommending it. I did not see it as a Christian. I kind of misspoke there. But I was talking to a, a young lady in our church who said at the age of 16, the movie came out, and um, she uh, decided to sneak out. She wasn't allowed to see it, but she decided to sneak out and see the movie. And she saw it, and she was so scared, and she went home. And the very next night, she was in bed sleeping, and the Silmar earthquake hit. And her bed was jumping up and down, and she thought for sure that Satan was under her bed. But, you know, demons are not... Demons are not there to scare us. Satan's not there to scare us. What he's there to do is to... And they're not there to call attention to themselves. No, they're to bring attention to you and to attack us. And what they're there to do is to attempt to tempt us into dishonoring God. And so I want to look at what whole, this whole idea of spiritual warfare. Steve Lawson said this, The Christian life is war, not a playground for children, but a battleground for soldiers. Deep within the hidden recesses of the human heart, a bloodless battle is being fought, a life and death struggle for the soul. The, this intense spiritual warfare is raging between God and Satan. This battle is relentless and ruthless. It stalks us like prey and tracks us down like a wild animal. It finds us no matter where we go and no matter where we try to hide. There is no escaping from this war. We can't run from it. We can't hide from it. There is no neutral ground in this conflict and no truce can be called. No ceasefire negotiated, no peace treaty signed, no white flag waved, no demilitarized zone in which to be entered. There are no conscientious objectors to this war, 
No spiritual pacifist can sit this out. No draft dodgers can protest and escape active duty. No medical deferments are given. Every believer is enlisted in place on the front lines. Every area of the Christian life is an unseen battlefront for the deadliest firefight of all, the spiritual warfare waged by Satan for control of your soul. The conflict is deadly is a deadly struggle to the finish. No prisoner is taken. Either you defeat the enemy or the enemy will defeat you. It is kill or be killed. We're in a war. And, you know, we obviously have a war that is waged inside of us, and we looked at that last week, but we also have an enemy that is waging a war against us. You know, one side we have our flesh and it's relentless. On the other side we have these fiery darts of the enemy that are are always being shot at us. And it's waged for your attention, for your souls. And we can't simply just walk passively through life as Christians thinking, I hope tomorrow will be better than today. No, we we as Spirit-filled believers are called to be in this battle and to gauge it. And we're called to be dangerous. And we are called to use those tools that God has given us to win this battle. 2 Corinthians 10.4, Paul says this, For the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but have the divine power to destroy strongholds. And we see in that passage that that there are things and accusations and people's wrong beliefs about who Jesus Christ is and what He's done. And we have the ability to break down those strongholds with these, these weapons that have divine power. And when we humble ourselves before God and we use these weapons, God can actually make us powerful and, and the devil will actually flee from us. Are you living a life in which the devil is saying, you know, I'm not going to have anything to do with that person. They, they stand firm. James 4, 6, and 7 says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. In your spiritual life, is it such a way that the, the, those enemies on the other side are fleeing from you? Do you have any impact? Do you show up on the, the ra- their radar as a threat? And when you look at this passage in Ephesians chapter 6, the interesting thing about this passage is it's really the clearest passage on this idea of spiritual warfare. I mean, there are other verses. You look at the Gospels and you see that you know, there's obviously demonic activity going on. You look at the book of Acts and you see it. But when you look at this book of Ephesians, it's an amazing book. And just to give you a little background on the book, what you have is that you have uh, the Apostle Paul, or God, painting this picture this amazing picture of truce. And he begins by telling Christians that we, that we as Christians can be reconciled to God and that we can be reconciled to one another. And he also paints this picture that as Christians we can have a life of, of our sins being forgiven and that we are new creations in Christ, that we could pass from spiritual death to spiritual life, that we could have a life of prayer and intimacy with God. We could serve God in such a way that our lives are fruitful and faithful and that we can participate in God's work and have, have a, a, an impact that's meaningful and eternal. And we could have marriages, he talks about. We could have marriages that reflect the goodness of God, that husbands could love their wives and that wives could uh, respect their husbands, that children could honor and obey their parents and, and learn, and that parents can train their children to love the Lord. He also talks in Ephesians about this idea that you know slaves should should submit to their masters even if they're unruly and that masters should be good to their slaves. And, and we, we can apply that to our lives, that, you know, uh, that we can actually have relationships within our jobs that, that employers are good to their employees and that employees can respect and honor their employers. 
And so it's an amazing, uh, magnificent book. It's stunning. It's encouraging. It's hopeful. And then we look at our lives and we think, why is my life still a mess? Why is my marriage still a mess? Why, why am I struggling in my ministry? And all that sounds so good. You know, why do I have conflicts with my kids every day? Why, why do I have uh, arguments with my employees or disagreements with them? And then you come to this passage in Ephesians chapter 6, and Paul gives, gives us the answer that there is a battle going on. He says in Ephesians 6 verse 10, we're going to be reading verses 10 through 18, it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the devil's schemes. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And so you see in this passage that, you know, as Paul is, is saying that how we can defend ourselves against the devil schemes, he has a lot of different schemes to win the battle against our souls. And, you know, if we're going to understand what those schemes are, the first thing we need to do is understand how he attacks. And one of the ways you can do that is just simply looking at, at what he is called. I mean, he's called Satan, which means the adversary. He's against us. We see that throughout the Bible, and we see that he's called the serpent. We know that he's, he's crafty, and he's the tempter. He comes to tempt us. He's the evil one that snatches the word away. He's the prince of demons. He's the father of lies. He's a murderer, a roaring lion that wants to devour. He's a deceiver, and he's a dragon. When we look at all those things and when we study in the Scripture what he does, the main thing that he does, the primary purpose in the enemy's attacks is to make us sin and make us forget. He wants to make us sin against God and he wants to make us forget God. You know, it's not, it's not much more than that. It's those things, but those are some pretty heavy things when we understand what sin is and, and what it means to forget God. And when we look at this passage, we see it in verse 12, outlines this whole idea that this is a supernatural battle. And because it's a supernatural battle, it takes supernatural warfare to, to engage the battle. Verse 12 again, says, For we do not wrestle. That whole idea of wrestling is doing battle. We do not war against the flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. Where? In the heavenly places. No, it's not against flesh and blood. And some, I know that sometimes it feels that way. You know, we face people, frustrations, temptations, and they're real. You know, it's not, it's not against your coworkers that you're mad at. You know, it's not against your neighbors that you're having difficulty with. It's not against your spouse who you're fighting with. No, it's not against politicians who we see as evil. No, there's something behind every one of these things. 
I mean, we often think that we're in this argument or this fight with our, our spouse. Are they on our side too? Of course they are. But we think it's against them. No, there's a, there's a spiritual go- battle going on behind the scenes as well that we have to understand that. If we don't, we're not going to engage the battle the way that we need to. And then he comes to verse 13. He says, Therefore, because we're in this battle, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Then what follows is seven pieces of armor that he gives in, in order for us to have this, this spiritual victory in the war for our souls. And what you're going to find is that these pieces of armor are really just fundamental Christianity. It's not this you know, huge spiritual thing that you know, only the, the few pastors and elders are able to engage the spiritual battle. No, this is for every one of us to engage. You know, doing battle with demonic forces doesn't take spiritual giants. No, it takes each one of us on a daily basis to engage this battle. And when you look at the historical context, what, what Paul is doing is, Paul at this time is, is actually imprisoned. He's under house arrest, and there's, there's a, probably a soldier there. And Paul is thinking, and he's writing this book of Ephesians, and he gets this picture of this, this soldier who's right there in front of him, and he takes these spiritual truths, these spiritual disciplines that we're supposed to have as Christians, and he weds the two of them together. And so he, what he does is he, he says, look, at this is how we're to wage the, the battle, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to engage these, and I'm going to bring them together in line with this, with this centurion who, who is obviously ready for battle. And what he says is, you know, I'm going to give you this picture of, of you need to know your enemy. You know, because if you don't know your enemy, you won't know how to defend yourself. You won't know your defense. You know, each week... You know, the, foot, the college football season got started yesterday. But each week, there are high school, college football teams, and professional football teams learning about the other team that they're going to play the following week. And they watch films. They study. And what they do is they, they look at these things and they find out what plays they run. They find out what their strengths are and what their weaknesses are. And because they may be strong in this area, what they do is they plan to engage that strong point. They know that this player is really good and they're going to have to fight that player more than they're going to have to really worry about this other player. But in the same way, the enemy looks at us and says, this is where they're weak. And what he wants to do is exploit that weakness. And so what we have to do is study the enemy and his schemes in order for us to fight this battle. Because we're not in a game. We're in war. And and what Paul does is he gives us seven pieces of, of God's armor. And the first one he gives us is this, the belt of truth. The belt of truth. Do you know why we have different branches of the military? It's because the, the enemy attacks us in different ways. There's different ways that he can attack. And, you know, this month, 10 years ago on September 11th, we were attacked. And the reason they were able to succeed is we didn't know how they were going to attack. We didn't know when they were going to attack. And because of that, their attack was very successful and it was a, a tragic day. So we have to be ready for that attack. And so we do have different branches of military. We have the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, and the Marines. And each one of those, you know, each one of those armed forces, each one of those branches of military are there because the enemy will attack in different ways. And so we need to be ready. In verse 14, he says, Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. And the reason he says this is because one of the primary ways that Satan attacks is simply through lying. He lies to us. 
And John says in John chapter 8, verse 44 and 45, says, or Jesus says this, He says, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. For most of us, our primary language is English, maybe Spanish. But we've been speaking that since we can't remember. But the enemy has been speaking lies from the very beginning. It's his native tongue, and, and he knows how to do it. And he's, he's been doing it for thousands of thousands of years. He's got it perfected. And when we look around, we know that it's his native language, and he's mastered this art. And we have to understand that, that lying is one way that he can really cause a lot of damage by it. So our only defense in this is truth, understanding what the truth is. And we understand that the Word of God says that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. Jesus is the truth. And we know that the Word of God is, is called truth. So the Scriptures are truth. And we know that Jesus is full of grace and truth. And I have a question. If, if you believe a lie that is, is told to you, does that get control of you? Does that gain control of you? Absolutely it does. And, you know, let me give you an example. This September 15th, my wife and I will have been married for 21 years. And if my, I mean, you know, by the grace of God, over these last 21 years, and because my wife is, is so wonderful, I have been faithful to her. And she knows that I love her. But, but let's just say for a moment that she began to believe that I, my affections were elsewhere, were on somebody else other than her, would, would that lie have an impact on her? Yeah, it would cause a lot of damage. And I've seen this in marriages. It would cause a lot of damage. And, and it would cause her pain and anguish. And you know, if we believe a lie, it can cause great damage to us. And so Satan knows this. And we have a young man in our church that we're trying to help. And he believes that the medications that he takes actually are hurting him. And so what does he do? He doesn't take them. And therefore, it's killing him. And it's sad for us because we actually have told him, if you don't take your medications, you can't come here because we love him enough because he's, he's starting to cause problems. But we love him enough to say, no, we want you here, but you must do this. We must trust us that we know what's best for you. And that these are good, but he believes this lie and it causes so many problems. And that's how the enemy works. He lies because he wants to destroy you. And you need to know truth. You need to know the truth about God. You need to know the truth about human sin. You need to know the truth about Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection. We need to know all truth. And we know that we have the Word of God here to to teach us what truth is. And we have the the Holy Spirit that comes and, and tells us what all truth is. John 16, 13 says, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. Now, you need to know all truth because your enemy loves to lie. And, you know, he he loves gossip. He loves slander. He loves bitterness. Because there are avenues that, that those lies can be spread and they keep on going and they keep on going. And we need to know truth. And it's, you know important for us as believers that, that, that we would speak the truth because we know that the kingdom of God is built on truth. And we know that the enemy wants to break down the kingdom of God because he's opposed to truth. And, you know, we live in a foolish day that people doubt the existence of God and they debate 
you know, this, this whole idea of actually having absolute truth. I mean, people are out there that say there is no truth. I mean, it's a crazy thing. I think just lie to them and let me, then ask them, do you believe in truth now? And they're going to say, yes, of course I believe in truth. No, but, but we have to understand that, you know, one of the most common ways that we have to deal with as a pastor is that people don't just simply believe the truth about the gospel. You know, people are confused and they don't understand the simple truth of the gospel. First John, one of my favorite passages, verse 9 of chapter 1 says this, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the beauty of that verse is that it says that our sins can be forgiven and He cleanses from the effects of those sins. He says that we need to be forgiven. The filth that comes upon us from our sins and, from our, and even from other people's sins that come against us can be forgiven. And God's people struggle with that simple truth. And I'm guessing that every one of us has some sin, something in our life, some event that we regret and that we wish we weren't true. And we can't get rid of it. And we believe the lie that, that God can't forgive that. You know, something in our mind that we wish we had, had done that we didn't do. Or something that we did that we wish we hadn't done. Or something that we said that we wish we hadn't said. Or something that uh, we wish we would have said that we didn't. We all have those regrets, and invariably God's people struggle to receive the grace that forgiveness offers. And why? Because the enemy is lying to us, because, you know, they, we, and we believe the lie. They're empowering that lie and living in a place where their faith and, and trust in God and His grace diminishes. And Christians do this. We, we forget that simple truth that if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And we don't have to sit there in the past and hold on to those things. No, we can move forward because what those things do is they just get us mired down. I remember Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim would get caught in the, the, the slough of despond. We get caught in this despair. We think, oh, we can't get out of it. And that's where Satan wants us to be. And you know, we, li- we live and our faith is diminished and our, our love for God diminishes. Why? Because you know, there's no truth in it. And it happens over and over and over. And, you know, that's one of the greatest techniques of the enemy. And, you know, is this, is this world, ask yourself this, is this world filled with, with truth? No, it's not. We actually laugh at it when somebody actually tells the truth all the time. Remember the movie Liar, Liar? Jim Carrey. Remember, you know, he was, he was a liar. But when he told the truth all the time, we thought it was crazy and funny. Crack up laughing at that. No, we live in a world that laughs at truth, and we have to understand God is a God of truth, and we should be a people of truth, and we should know the truth. And one of the greatest weapons the enemy has is lies. The second piece of armor is the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness. Verse 14 says, And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Another way that Satan works is through good old-fashioned sin. A lot of people don't believe that they're under spiritual warfare. They haven't seen anything, like I said, the exorcist. But you know that Satan usually works in simple ways. And one of them is just to get us to sin. You know, we studied this last week that the the passions of the flesh provoke the battle. And I said, even if Satan and the demons weren't here, we would still have to contend with our flesh, wouldn't, wouldn't we? But guess what? We do have Satan, and what does he do? He looks at our weaknesses. 
Yes, you know, our sins are just part of our flesh. James says in, in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by our own desire. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, Satan knows that, that our flesh does this to us. And what does he do? He, he tries to attack those same things, and he tempts us. And, you know, it's kind of like advertising. What Satan does is he, he shows us what we want and what we desire. And we say, that looks good, and it appeals to me, and, you know, it feels good. He says things like, you deserve this. It works well. It works wonders. And, you know, the thing is, Satan has this down. You know, we, we have to look at this. And if Satan or his demons came with a horns and a pitchfork, you know, we would see that coming, but, but he doesn't. No, he comes and he comes and tempts us. And we think that giving into sin is just between us and God. And we forget that it's giving into his schemes, the devil's schemes. And we think that our, our sin isn't demonic, but it is. It's evil. And, you know, that's what the enemy says. And we understand we, we're sinning against a holy God. The enemy wants to lie to us and get us to, to fall in. And he wants to, he wants to shoot at our, our righteousness. This is when we have to put on the breastplate of righteousness. But we have to understand this. We don't fight with our own righteousness. We, we fight with the righteousness of Christ. Philippians, go ahead and turn a couple pages over in the next book to Philippians chapter 3. No, we, we, we read in this passage that, that we have been given the righteousness of Christ. Philippians 3, verses 8 through 14, we're going to look at. It says in verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. See, he gives us this righteousness. He closes us with it, and it's basically just because of faith. And we come to him, but, but that righteousness, it's like, putting on, it's like putting on shoes. Once you put on shoes, what do you have to do? Walk in it. And so righteousness is given to us by Christ, but it causes something to change in us, and we, we're able actually to walk in his righteousness. And he goes on and he says in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. No, Paul says, now that I have his righteousness, I can have the power of his resurrection, and that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I, I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So what he's saying is that, you know, we have this, this, righteousness that we put on but that righteousness actually makes us live and, and we're clothed with the righteousness of christ and because of that we can actually live out that righteousness and it's it's saying no to sin and yes to christ by his grace but within that we we take god's grace which empowers us and we walk in that and what paul says is what, that we can participate in his righteousness we can say no you know what are your favorite sins you know you don't have to tell me what they are but if, if, if you're Satan and you're going to go after you and you're going to pick a point of vulnerability that you have, what would it be? You know, and, and we, we have these things and they're weak spots and Satan exposes them 
day after day, week after week, and sadly, we give in to them. And God says that that is unrighteousness. It's, it's, it's not legalism. No, we're thinking more highly of ourselves than we are of God. And do we love God more than our own flesh? And you know, we have to understand that we can put on the, the righteousness of Christ. And when that temptation comes, we can take that, that breastplate, and we can say, you know what, I, I have that temptation. I know what it is. It's, it's there every day. And I can say, you know what? No, I stand in the righteousness. When Satan lies to you, you can say, no, you know what? I stand in the righteousness of Christ. When he says you're not good enough, you can say, I stand in the righteousness of Christ. It's not my righteousness. It's his. It's his armor, not mine. Yes, we have to put his armor on. But, and when we do that, when we say, I stand in the righteousness of Christ, what happens? We're empowered. We're empowered to say no to that. It brings me to the, th- the third piece of armor. The shoes of readiness. The shoes of readiness. In verse 15 it says, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And what he's talking about here is a, a sense of urgency. It's critical. It's important. You know, most of our, us don't live our spiritual lives with a sense of urgency. It's not that important. We don't need to move quickly. You know, we don't need to repent quickly. We, we don't need to pray quickly. We don't need to serve quickly. We say, I'll get to it when I get to it, if I get to it. And what he's saying is that the gospel that brought you peace should give you a readiness. You know, if, if you've been saved by the grace of God and the gospel has empower, empowered your life, you should be ready to do battle. You should be ready to help. You should be ready to serve. You should be ready. And 1 Timothy says this, or 2 Timothy says this in chapter 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. No, we're, we're to be ready in season and out of season. It's like we're, we're runners who are sitting there at the starting line and we're in the blocks waiting for that gun to be shot so that we can take off. I mean, are we sitting there saying, okay, God, when is the next thing you're going to have me do? I'm ready for it. I'm ready to see that person's need, and I'm going to meet it. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to look for people that need help, and I'm going to meet it. I'm going to look, you know, God, I'm not really involved in anything right now. You show me the ministry you want me to be involved in. And that's what God wants us. He wants us to be ready. But people don't recognize the obvious needs around them. Let me ask you this. If Satan showed up at your door and knocked on your door and introduced himself and showed you his plan on how to attack your life, would you be ready for it? Or would you get ready for it once he showed you? Absolutely. And, you know, what, what God is doing here in Ephesians is he's showing you the same thing. He's saying, look, you have an enemy and he has a plan. And it's important to na- take note of that plan. And we need to live in the light of this fact. It's urgent. It's important. You know, because the enemy is not going to wait for you to get up off the couch to attack you. you know, he's going to be attacking you all the time. And so what we need to do is we need to get ready and we have to you know, be, be willing to engage the battle. You know, we need to have a, a sense of urgency. And you know, he's a, he is very happy to attack you when you're lying down or when you're on your way to church. How many have been attacked on your way to church? Seems like it happens actually quite often, doesn't it? I know what happened with me this week as I was studying for the sermon. You know, it's like, and it, you know, I didn't let it get to me. It just took me a lot longer. And that's okay. I, 
I, I, I understood the battle. And because I understood the battle, it didn't affect me. So we need to be ready. The third, I mean, the fourth piece of, piece of armor is the shield of faith. The shield of faith. In verse 16, Paul says this, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. You know, at this time, uh, shields were made of wood. And so what the enemy would do is, is actually light arrows on fire and shoot them at them, thinking that if, if, the, if the shield caught on fire, they would discard it or it would be burned up so that we would be exposed. And, you know, one of the things that they would do is they would actually wrap the shields in leather and then soak them in water so that they would be ready to extinguish the arrows. And so Paul's looking at that and he's saying, you know, we need to be ready. We need to be ready because the, the enemy is going to shoot these flaming arrows at, at God's children. He does this all the time. You know, it could be temptation. It could be lies. And one of the ways I think that the enemy attacks believers uh, most often is, is to shoot accusations at us. He's, he's our accuser. And if you haven't felt accused, if you haven't heard Satan's accusations, guess what? God has heard them about you. It says in Revelations, Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, it says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come down. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And what does he say? He says, You're not loved. You're not forgiven. You're not cared for. You're not significant. You're not needed. You're not maturing. You're not progressing. You're not giving enough. You're not serving enough. enough. And then we say, well, no, I am serving and I am giving. Then what does he say? Yeah, but you're doing it with wrong motives. And we just can't get away from it. His, His flaming arrows are constantly at us trying to derail us from what God has intended. And we have to combat that. And we have to take up the shield of faith. And, you know, no matter what it is, these, these arrows keep coming at you. And, you know, some of you know exactly what I'm saying. And you feel like taking that shield of faith and you, you feel like just laying down, curling up, and just putting it on top of you, escaping from it. I'm so tired of this. This attack from the enemy is relentless. And what Satan is doing is accusing us of things that Jesus has already dealt with on the cross. He's already paid for these things. But the arrows continue, the temptation, the opposition, the accusations, the lies. And after a while, it gets exhausting. And how do you protect yourself against this kind of assault? Paul says it. He says, take up the shield of faith. You know, there are those moments that we... We must trust God. We're accused. We're tempted. We're we're lied to. We're opposed. Those moments when it seems like we're alone, when it seems like God is not there, or that God doesn't care. No, he says, in those moments, those hardest moments, he says, take up the shield of faith. And we have to believe God. We have to trust Him. We have to have that faith. Hebrews 11.1 says, Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So what we have to do is this. We we need to trust God's Word. Trust God's Word until it's all done and God proves Himself right. Do you know the Word of God says that, that every promise is yes in Christ? Every promise is yes in Christ. 
And what that says to us is that even though we might not get that promise today, it's either tomorrow or it's in the life to come. And we can trust God in that. No matter where you're at, no matter what you're going through, God is there and He, he will an- answer that. And we can trust Him. But we, one of the things is, you know, we sin and we, we leave ourselves completely exposed. We drop the shield of faith. We're, we're, we, do, we don't take it up and we're exposed. We sin and we justify it. We, we believe the lies and we justify it. We believe the accusations and we justify it. And we have to trust God most desperately in that moment because the war ensues and the worst thing you can do, the worst thing you can do when you're going through this battle is to turn your backs and walk away from Christ. It's the worst thing you can do. You know, when I was a young boy, I, you know, I grew up playing hockey. And I can remember the first season I played, I bought some used equipment that wasn't the best. And one of the, the drills that our, our, my, my coach had us do was to get us to rely on our equipment. And so he had the best guy who could take the, the best slap shot out here, and we had to skate at him and let him shoot the puck at us. And you, you had this tendency to want to turn around. But the only place you had armor was in front. We have to take up the shield of faith. Because if I, you turn around, it leaves you completely exposed. And it was hard to stand firm with that. But brothers and sisters, what we have to do is remember that Christ is there and that, that He has given us this great hope, and that the Word of God gives us hope, and we have to stand in that faith. God, I know you're with me. Even even though I don't feel that you are right now, I know. And what he does is he brings us through, and he he gets us to the other side. Don't turn your back. Don't turn your back. The next piece of armor is the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. How many of us know this? That our heads are important. You know, you can, you can lose other limbs. You can't lose your head and survive. You know, I remember growing up as a young, a young boy, loving World War II stuff. And you could always tell the, the different countries by their helmets. You know, the Americans, they had that, that normal helmet. The, the British had that, that other helmet that was kind of like, you know, flared out. Didn't look like it would save anybody from anything. Then the Germans, you know, you know what their helmet looks like, don't you? And we all know that. And, and because helmets are important, but the worst thing you could be without in a war is what? A helmet. And so Paul says, put on the helmet of salvation. I mean, this is a foundational thing that we must protect ourselves and know that we're saved by the grace of God. And we, we have to understand who, are, who Jesus is and that we need Him desperately. We need this helmet of salvation. We need to know that if if you're out there in a war without a helmet, you're dead. Acts chapter 4, verse 12 says this about Jesus, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You know, Satan is real. Satan exists. Demons are real. Demons exist. Hell is real. Hell exists. Death is real. Death exists. And if you're walking around with no helmet on your head, you're dead too. And we have to be protected in this war. And the most important thing for us to understand is that we must be saved and, and we must live 
as we are saved. As I said about the breastplate of righteousness, we can, we can stand against the, the evil enemy by putting on the helmet of salvation. God, I know I'm saved. I can stand with this because I have your salvation and that gives us hope, gives us power. So those are our defensive weapons. I'm going to quickly look at, at two offensive weapons. And the sixth piece of armor is this, the sword of the Spirit. Verse 17 says, And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And I'm going to make this simple. This is your sword right here. We all have one, or we should have one. Does Satan use the sword? You bet. He uses the sword. You know, he does it all the time. He does it in Genesis when he tempts Adam and Eve. Did God really say? He twists and maligns God's words. Satan misquotes the Scripture. And what does Eve do in return? She believes it and misquotes Scripture herself. And at that point, the battle's over. Satan does the same thing when he tempts Jesus and he shows up in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus has been fasting and praying for 40 days and the enemy's there and, and he tempts Jesus with the Word of God. Satan uses the sword, but what does Jesus do? He combats it with the Word of God. What, does Jesus, what scriptures does, does Jesus quote back in return? Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. How many of us have memorized a lot of scriptures out of Deuteronomy? I mean, obviously we know that Jesus was perfect in every way. He knew the Word of God. But we should know the Word of God as well. If we're going to confront the enemy, if we're going to do battle with him, we must take up the Word of God. I mean, picture this. If you're dropped into the middle, in the middle of the night, into the darkest part of the battle, would you think it would be important to have a map, to have a compass, to have your orders, to have your objective, to have your night vision goggles? Would it be important to have those things? Absolutely. We have those things. We have our map. We have our compass. We have our orders. We have our mission. We have our objective. We have our night vision goggles. It's everything for us. But we need to know how to wield it. Study your word. Know where things are. If you don't memorize it, know where they're at. Make notes in it. Mark it up. Use it. Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. In the midst of a dark battle, we need to have this as our light. But one of the worst things we can do as Christians, we have all these things and we don't pick it up. We don't take it off the shelf. Can you imagine being in a battle and having your map and your compass, your night vision goggles, but not using them? It would be foolish. No, but... And what happens is that we forget that we're in a battle. We forget that we have an enemy. And we don't pick up our sword. Why? Because we think we're not in the battle. We have to be reminded that we're in a battle. We think it's peacetime. When it's peacetime, you don't need a sword. But no, when it's wartime, we do. And it is wartime. We need a sword. And, you know, there are two things that Christians often do with a sword that they shouldn't. And one is they, they use the sword on each other. You know, they argue over peripheral doctrines that, you know, don't lead to salvation. You know, they argue over things like the second coming of Christ and they get angry and bitter and they get divisive. Or they argue over the timing of, uh, well, the second coming, but also they, they argue over 
spiritual gifts, whether they're for today or, for, or not for today. And, you know, I believe we need to fight with our swords when it comes to essential Christian doctrine. Those things we all agree on. We need to stand firm. And I also think that we should debate one another on these peripheral doctrines. We should have vigorous conversations. We should, we should know what we believe and why we believe it. And I think it, we should sharpen one another with our beliefs. And we should challenge one another with these peripheral doctrines. But we shouldn't stab each other with the sword. We shouldn't fight so much that the world sees this. And, you know, the enemy loves to sit back and watch us fight one another and to devour one another and to kill one another with a sword. It's one of his, his shortcuts. You know, if you're a Christian and you love God, you should take up your sword. You should study the Scriptures. And on the essentials, we should agree. On secondary matters, we should debate. We should argue. We should sharpen one another's swords, but we shouldn't stab each other. But the other thing that Christians do, and I kind of mentioned this, is we don't, we don't really study it. What we do is we, we listen to the enemy. We study the, the opposing side, the opposing arguments so well. You know, some Christians have studied the tactics of the enemy by reading or listening to material written by or delivered by uneducated or educated heathens so that they don't believe that this is even a sword anymore. They don't believe that we're in a battle. You know, I don't know if it's true. I don't know if it's God's Word. You know, I don't know if it's a myth or a fable. Pastor Roberto and I were just talking last week about this. That We had some of the same professors, and we, we were reflecting on how some of them would attack. And we have to understand that it's, it's their venue. You know, it's very hard to win an argument in a, in a professor's classroom because they have control over the conversation. And I, I was always amazed that, that the professors would never call on those Christians who really knew the Word of God. They would call on Christians who didn't know the Word of God to derail them and to get other people in the room to think that, look, Christians really don't know what they're talking about. But they have a plan, and, and these Christians you know, that would be attacked, these weaker ones that didn't know the Word of God, they would be attacked, and they'd walk away saying, oh, you know, my professor is so smart, and I, I can't answer his questions, therefore he must be right. And what the enemy is, is coming up and saying is, you know, this is not a sword. Put it down. It doesn't amount to anything. And so we lay down our swords, and, and what do they do? They pick it up, and they stab us with it. I mean, I, I, you recognize that with these heathen professors. They have a plan. You know, the amazing thing is these godly inst- godless instructors say that they want to enlighten us. And to teach us, to teach our children. But they have the same goal, whether it's the university or the high school or the grade school. And that's to get us to put down our swords, to surrender, to think that the war is over and that Christianity has lost. But it isn't. They're lying to you. And the funny thing is we believe it at times. And we see Christians that do it. And it's sad. You know, these these professors, you know, how many times have you heard this? I just do this for the children. They don't do it for the children. I mean, obviously, we have there are good teachers out there, and there are, God, there are godly teachers out there, and they do do it for the kids, and they want to reach out. But so many of them do not want to do it. They're, they're on the side of the enemy. They say they want to enlighten. They say, they say they want to help. They say they want to do good, but they really don't. You know, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 14 and 15, Paul says this, And no wonder... For Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, so it is no surprise his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. 
Every day we need to pick up our sword and you have to to make sure that it's sharp because we don't know. If if you think today is not so hard, guess what? Next week, tomorrow, it's going to be hard. We need to be ready to take up our swords. Every day you need to pick it up. And my question is, how well do you know the Scriptures? We need to study them. We need to know them. We need to memorize them. It's important. It's important for your life. It's important for our church that you pick up your sword. It's important for your family, for your marriage. It's important for the kingdom because the enemy is trying to to break down the church. He's trying to break down the family. He's trying to destroy marriages. He's trying to bring bitterness between friends. But the Word of God is there to give us the tools we need, the information and the transformation. No, it's you know, to fall more in love with, with Jesus, to cut sin out of our lives. You know, the enemy is trying to devour us, and we need to take up this, this sword, which is the Word of God. And the last weapon he tells us is prayer. The last weapon he tells us is prayer. Verse 18 says, Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to, to that end keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And what he's saying is is pray for one another. Why? Because we're at war. Because we have an enemy who wants to devour us. He wants to destroy marriages. He wants to shipwreck people's faith. He wants to tear families apart. He wants to make us discontent. He wants to divide the church. He wants to lead us into sin. You know, Jesus prayed for us in John's Gospel. And He prayed, Father, make them one as You and I are one. Do you think... If Jesus thought that that was important to pray, that we should pray for that, that we as a church would be one, that we would be united. You know, but some of us say, well, you know, I, I don't, really don't know how to pray. No, we need to pray for wisdom. We need to pray for faith. We need to pray for grace. And if we don't know how to pray, we need to ask Jesus to teach us to pray. His disciples did. You know, it's amazing that the way that God answers prayer. And, you know, there are people who... who um, come to us and they say, you know, I'm struggling with this. And we don't know what to say. We don't know what to pray. But we can simply draw near to God and say, God, you know, you te- teach me what to pray for this person. Show me what to pray th- for this person. Do you think God would answer that? Absolutely He would. You know, so we can go before Him, teach me to pray, because He wants us to. It's one of our weapons. 1 Thessalonians 5 Verses 15 through 18 says this, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. We have a plan here at Hope Chapel, and that plan is to make disciples. Our motto is to win, equip, and send. And it's, it's, it's a wonderful plan, but do you know what? The enemy also has a plan. The enemy also has a plan. And we don't know always what it exactly is, but we know it's not good because he wants to, to destroy our plans. He wants to destroy all that's good and everything that God intends. And So what should we do? Should we get freaked out? No. Should we sit down and be lazy? No. No, we need to do those things that have got us this far but even more than that, we need to take up those armors. We need to do what God has called us to do. It starts with salvation. 
obviously leading people to Christ, getting them to understand uh, what their sin is, bringing them to repentance, to trust in Jesus. We need to trust in Jesus. We need to study the Scriptures individually and corporately. That's why we believe in preaching just from the Word of God. We need to pray individually and corporately because we know that God hears and God answers. We need to walk in the righteousness of Christ, standing firm, God, I'm righteous in you, not in myself. And we need to accept the truth because we know it says in Romans chapter 1 that those who, that those who suppress the, the truth, they do it with unrighteousness. No, don't fight the truth. Embrace the truth. Why? Because we're at war and it's worth fighting for. Amen? Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your word and we thank you for uh, this wonderful passage in Ephesians chapter 6 that teaches us how to engage the battle. Lord, I pray that we as a church would know your strength, the strength that you give. I pray that we would, as Paul commands us, that we would put on the full arm of God, that we would be able to stand in the day of evil. Lord, again, we we pray for your spirit to work mightily in us, Lord, because without it, we can do nothing. In Jesus' name, amen.